We're going to finish up the Abraham narratives today. All right, we, we spent four weeks here looking at, spending four weeks looking at the life of Abraham, and, and I hope you got a feel for it of Abraham is the man through whom God is determined to bless all the families of the earth, to, to bring that new creation we just sang about, to, to build a multi-ethnic mul- multitude of, kingdom, of kings and priests to God and Father serving the world, uh, to be ministers of the gospel wherever you go. And, and so Abraham is the start to that big work of what God's going to do through Jesus. And, and this morning we're going to see, right, the, the whole tension of the narrative is about the, the, the promised son of Genesis 3. It's going to come through Abraham. What do we do when God says, I want you to offer as a sacrifice the promised son? It puts everything in jeopardy. And so let's, let's read Genesis 22 with that in mind. Um, and we'll, we'll do that. And it's helpful to remember we skipped over uh, Sodom and Gomorrah stories. Uh, Abraham prayed for this wicked city. We, we missed Lot being rescued. We missed the mess that Lot's family made. Uh, Isaac was finally born. And Ishmael and Hagar have been sent out into the wilderness, uh, expelled from the family. And that's the context where we're, we're stepping in here after that. Um, So this is the binding of Isaac, Genesis 22, the word of our God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering, for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, 
the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'akah. All kinds of fun words there. This is the word of our God. He has shown us the gospel today. Uh, he has spoken to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we, we do come this morning with all kinds of anxieties, fears, uh, questions about the future. But I pray that your spirit would help us leave here uh, saying in our hearts, now we know that you love us because you gave up your only son, your son whom you love in our place. So help us see you this morning as as our provider, that, that you would build in us faith, even faith that obeys. Uh, we, would, we would love to see your spirit surprise us with that work of making us more willing to keep your will, to do what is good, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So did you, I know for, for some of us this is very familiar, you've heard this for decades, but did you find this reading out loud of the, of the story of the binding of Isaac, uh, a wonderful portrayal of the obedience of Abraham, or are you horrified at the command that God said, I want you to go offer up your son as an offering, holding a knife, ready to slaughter his son, All right? If, if you're horrified, you aren't alone. Um, it's been, this has been a conversation that's been going on for millennium. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous prickly atheist, this is one of the places he goes to say why he has a beef with the Bible. Uh, he talks about the dilemma in this passage. He says, it turns out God was only joking after all, tempting Abraham and testing his faith. To me, it reads as, as an example of ch child abuse in both. God with Abraham and Abraham with his son. And it's the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was simply following orders. Right? Like I said, he's, he's pretty pointed. You know, he's making a really good point, right? If, if you're in a conversation with a friend and, and, and they say, God spoke to me and, and told me to go do violence to a loved one, and they say, yeah, I obeyed, right? We would have them locked up. We would call them a lunatic. We have words for people who do that kind of thing. We call them extremists. And yet the Bible over and over again sees something completely different because Abraham's faith is praised. Right? I mean, listen to, to James. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works. His faith was completed by his works, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham's obedience, which was an expression of his faith, Scripture praises him as an example. He obeyed God's voice. That's what it says at the end. So the goal is that we would grow in our faith and faith's willingness to obey, but we've got to figure out what is happening here. Why does God ask Abraham to do this thing, to kill Isaac? And so let's, let's look at the test here. Right, you have God's test in verse 1 where God tested Abraham. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. You can hear the emotion wrapped around this person. And offer him as a burnt offering on a particular mountain that I will tell you in the land of Moriah. Right? This, this whole thing is framed as a test, a test of faith. Right? And, and it goes against common sense, right? as we talked about. I mean, one, Abraham's faith and his allegiance to the Lord is now opposed to what Abraham loves most, his son, Isaac, right? I mean, God is calling him to offer up his very emotional and personal center. I mean, you think about Abraham's life, everything is aimed at this one goal, have a son, have an heir. And he's been willing to hurt people in the process to make it happen, right? I mean, this is, this is a century long, almost a century long ambition, right? Ever since he Ever since we met him, it's at least a quarter century ambition. I want a son. It makes no sense. This sounds like the foolishness of God, right? Abraham, here's what I want you to do. Obey God's wisdom, even though it sounds foolish to you, and give up what you love most for me, your son, whom you love, your only son. It goes against all human wisdom here. And second, God's test seems to go against God's promise to Abraham. Right? I mean, that's, what, that's where we left Abraham in chapter 17, where God swore, you will have a son of your, your own. His name will be Isaac. Even though your body is good as dead, and even though your wife has a dead womb, you will have this child that will make you laugh, a child of promise, Isaac. And so now you have God saying in this test, sacrifice the son I supernaturally gave to you, who I've already promised to bless with an everlasting covenant. Right? So it says, I will, God says, you will, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with you, or with him in particular, with Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. See, God's test right here seemingly goes against God's promise. Right? For Isaac to have children, he has to survive. Uh, and then you see God's test also seems opposed to God's words things he said everywhere else in the Bible, right? So you keep reading, you get to Deuteronomy 18, right? It's over and over again, God hates human sacrifice. It's an abomination. This is not something you ought to do. Uh, this is a pagan thing. This is why God is angry at his people. Just read the prophets. I mean, Deuteronomy 18 says, there should not be found among any of you who would burn their son or daughter as an offering. Right? Or Jeremiah 7, Right? These people, talking about Israel, they built these high places, these altars, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not tell them to do, nor did it ever come into my mind. 
Like it's so awful. God's saying, I would never even think of such a thing. Except for here. <laughs> Genesis 22. Right, so this test, whatever it is, it's going against a- common sense, it's going against Abram's desires, it's going against God's promise and seemingly contradicting God's words. And so we've got to ask, what in the world is happening here? Why would he do this to Abraham? Why would he make such a, a big ask that sounds immoral from the outset? Right? And it helps to know a couple things here. To have a theology of testing. This is how God works. Right? God tests his servants so that he might see what is in their hearts. It's a, reveal, it's a, it's a revealing thing. Right? That God might know what Abraham actually believes. We all have things we say we believe until you go through them, and then your, your actions demonstrate what you actually believe and what you value. Right? And so one of the clearest testing passages in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Israel's been dragged through the wilderness for 40 years, and God says he did that on purpose so that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in the hearts of his people who were wandering, whether they would keep God's commandments or not. And then he humbled them and he fed them with manna, and the purpose of that was so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So put, the, put this together. Testing in the Old Testament in the scriptures, it's so God can see the hearts of his people and so that the hearts of the people can see what God is like. Right? Whether or not they will keep the commandments and whether or not God will live up to his end of the deal and be faithful and provide what we need. Right? God tests his people that he might know them and they would know him. That's what God is up to with Abraham. Right? Two people are being put to test. It's Abraham's being tested, but so is his promise and so is his word. And so here we are with Abraham, and here's the test. What is in your heart, Abraham? Give up your son, your only son whom you love. Do you love me? Is your love for me more central, more significant, more controlling? Is it your security, your foundation in your life more so than the son? Right? Am I the Lord, your foundation? Do you pr- trust my promise and my words even when they make no sense? Right? Will you obey? And that's exactly what Abraham does. Right? He doesn't question. We don't get his inner dialogue. We don't get all of our objections. He just says, so Abraham arose. He grabbed a donkey, his servants, his son. He cut the wood, and he obeyed. And in fact, I mean, one commentator says, the order in which he obeys doesn't really make sense, because why would you cut the wood last? It would seem like you would cut the wood, saddle the donkey, and then grab everyone and go. Probably because of grief and being staggered by the command. But he went. He obeyed the voice of the Lord. I mean, over and over again, it's, here I am, Lord, here I am. I'm willing. And so you can pause there and think about how has God tested you and how is, is he testing you right now that you would know him and he would know you. Right? I mean, everything that's happened in the last two crazy years, 
um, the last week, perhaps this morning, right? those are revealing moments. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Who do you love most? Um, what do you care about most? It's a test. It's revealing. Do you have a heart that desires to keep God's commandments, even if they seem foolish to you and foolish to the world? Right? It's revealing. Right? So Abraham obeys. And it's a really good question. Do you have, do we, I won't pick on me, we have a sense that we can trust God's wisdom and his commands even when it seems foolish and especially when they they come opposed to what I want most out of life that's where Abraham's at right I want most I want to have an heir and God says give him up right I mean we live in a me-centered culture where even my religion should only ever do what's best for me and my wants Right at the beginning in Genesis 22, you have a portrait of faith contradicting someone's heart's deepest longings in the most unsafe way possible. Give up your son, your only son. Right? I mean, the culture around you is going to say, why would you ever sacrifice anything for, for a God you cannot see? And then you have Abraham. Right? And the reason they won't sacrifice is because it doesn't feel safe. Right. And to be clear, it's not sacrifice your children, it's submit to God's commands. Right. So, that's what Abraham's on this, he's been on this journey. Will you obey God's command? Will you trust God's word? And really what this promise is doing is just bringing the whole life of Abraham to this peak to say, will you let God rearrange your priorities God may not be safe, but you know he is good. Will you trust him that he will provide? Right? That journey for Abraham from, from the land of Ur back in chapter uh, 12 to Mount Moriah where he is with Isaac with the knife hanging over his son. Right? It's been this whole journey. God's training him to, to love God more than anything else. And so right here, this is the test. Abraham... You now have no choice but to put to death your self-reliance, your scheming, your planning. The only thing you can do if you're going to obey is let God provide for you. There's no other way to do this. Right? right? So by faith, that's what he does. He obeys. And Abraham, when he was tested, as the writer of the Hebrews, he offered up Isaac and he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. And so he went, and hoping against hope. Right, so this test is revealing Abraham's heart, isn't it? Now I got another question. Why in the world would Abraham obey this command? Right? Because there are those of us um, outside the world who would say, God loves me, why do I have to worry about his commands? Like those are optional unless I feel like it. It's a more relativistic way of looking at the scriptures. And those are saying, ah, if I want God to bless me, I have to obey. Right? Why would Abraham obey a command like, offer up your son? And the, the answer is more haunting than you think. Right? Because we hear, I know I hear the command, go offer up Isaac. Right? In my American ears, it sounds like, go murder your son. 
right? Or like Richard Dawkins, this is all kinds of horrible child abuse. No, but he's specifically calling Abraham to offer Isaac as an offering, right? And because Isaac the son was to be bound and put on the fire for a particular kind of offering, the ancient world did hear this command differently than us. Still be horrified by the the notion, but there's a context for what it's communicating. Right? And part of it has to do with just the reality of how families worked in the Old Testament and the firstborn. Right? If you were the firstborn, you were the most blessed in the family. Right? Over and over again, you read in Genesis, the one who's born first, they get the blessing, they're the favorite, they get the inheritance. That's just how families survive. Right? Because if you're really, really rich and you, you got... 15 kids and you split your money 15 ways, your family all of a sudden is just drowned in poverty. So instead, let's give one responsible firstborn son because firstborns neurotically have to obey their parents, right? And let them lead and take care of everyone else and it just protects the family and their family's interests, right? And the whole point is, to the ancient world, the firstborn, um, the, the, the way the the experts talk about it, they are their very hope for the future, right? If, if you don't have a firstborn, if you don't have an heir, you have no life, right? The, the modern way of talking about it, if like, if I lose all my 401k, right, I can't see life as worth living because I have no future now. That, that's the equivalent to having a firstborn, right? To not have an heir would be like just being in the walking dead. You'd be a zombie. You have no future, no hope. You're alive, but dead. And so here, God chooses Isaac to be Abraham's heir and firstborn to treat the second one, right? He technically is Abraham's second son, but I want you to bless Isaac in particular. But over and over, what does God say in the Old Testament? Everything that comes first belongs to me. You have to redeem it, right? Bring your firstborn cattle to me. Bring your, the first fruits of your harvest Specifically, he says to his people, the firstborn are forfeit to me. You have to pay money so that they live. Right? And you, you hear that in the 10 plagues of Egypt that we're going to talk about here uh, eventually, that the culmination of God's judgment was on, the, in particular, the firstborn son. Right? On everybody, Jew and Gentile, right? Egyptian and, and Hebrew. And for the Jews, the only firstborn sons who survived were those who took refuge under the blood of the Lamb. Because it was, see, the, the taking of the firstborn was an ancient way of saying all have sinned. No one is righteous, no, not one. And families are a mess. And they owe God a debt of sin. Right? And so the language of offering, all the hopes of the future, what Abraham's hearing God say, right? You and your family, you're sinners, right? I'm, you owe me. I am a God who is holy. I am a God who is just. Sin must be paid for, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole story of Genesis up to this point, that even the best of us, Abraham, acts just like Adam and Eve, and that's, that's the real horror of the test. It's not to just give up your son. It's the, 
Just imagine the sheer weight of guilt and shame that Abraham went as he walked up with his son up the mountain. Right? His failure with Hagar in his mind's eye. His failure to believe the promise every time he lied about his wife and the damage that did to her. Right? So the old German commentator Gerhard von Rad says, the only way, unfortunately, you can answer everyone's complaints about this story is by saying it's about something much more scary than child sacrifice. It's about justice. Right? Is God gracious? Will he resurrect Isaac? Will he bring him back from the dead? Will God forgive Abraham and have mercy and get him off the hook? Or is God just? Will Isaac suffer for the sins of this particular family? Because Abraham failed to love God and love neighbor. Right? Sin has a cost. Right? And if God is just, and this adds all the other questions, right? if Isaac dies, what about the hope for the world, much less this particular family? What about the Messiah? Right? There's a promised family that's going to pass the hope of, of Jesus coming right through that family. If Isaac goes, there goes the whole thing. There goes all our hopes for evil being vanquished, death being swallowed, sin being taken away, and the, and the world being made new. It all lies on Isaac. But if God is gracious and lets Isaac live, what about real evil in the world? It's going to feel like Abraham's oppression of Hagar, that's just going to get off scot-free. That doesn't seem just. Right? What about the rest of the human race and all the bloodshed? And so those are all the questions, right? How in the world does this fit together? This is the test. It's horrifying. Turns out it's not just scary for Abraham, it's also scary for us. What is God like that he would ask this kind of question? And that's where you have to look at God's provision. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw this place from afar and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will come wor go worship over there and then we will come again to you. All right. Abraham's on his way up the mountain. And what's fascinating is um, you don't, the only conversation you get, the only glimpse you get into Abraham's heart and mind is in this little conversation between Isaac and Abraham, between father and deeply loved son. And this is where the storytelling slows way down. Because Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering. He specifically lays the wood, the tree, on his son. Isaac is carrying his own, own wood up the mountain. He takes in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both go up together. This is father and son unified in this plan. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And here's, this is, this is the only dialogue you get about Abraham and what's going on in his head. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Right? I know our self-talk is like, just suck it up, be strong. Be brave, don't be a wimp, I can do this. You go up the mountain like the train that could, I think I can, I think I can. Abraham doesn't even have that option. And so his self-talk going up the mountain is, God's going to have to provide because I don't know what's going to happen. 
God will provide, God will provide, God will see to this. And that's, that's what the word provide means in Hebrew. It's literally God will see to this thing. He will see it. Right? Abraham can't see the lamb. Isaac can't see the lamb. And so we have to trust that the Lord will provide the lamb for the offering. Even though you can't see. Somehow God will keep this child alive, even if it means resurrection in order to bless the world. That's Abraham's hope. I mean, what, what does he have to rely on at this point? He has zero resources to manipulate the outcome. How do you overcome death? Right. He still has the covenant promise in his head that God said, I will bless. But he's got questions. And so that's what happens. They come to the place where God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I mean, just look at the, the humble submission of Isaac to allow himself to be bound, to lie on the altar. It's assuming that there must have been some conversation where Abraham told him, you're the offering. He's not arguing. And so Abraham reached out his hand, takes the knife to slaughter his son, and that's when the Lord interrupts him. And we all exhale And says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him because now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He obeyed God's voice. And so Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the substitution, this ram in the thicket. And the ram gets offered up in place of his son. And, And Abraham goes back down the mountain saying the Lord provided but what about my sin? Like that question isn't answered. And so we finish and say, what was that about? <laughs> Why would he go through all that? I mean, one, you get to see Abraham's heart. He really did fear God through this whole process, meaning he, he let his faith in God control his behavior. All right? But you do get that note in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place on that particular mountain the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Right? And there's two, two notes that are going to help us understand this. The mount of the Lord is almost always in the Old Testament referring to Jerusalem, this particular mountain where God dwells. And there's a note in Chronicles that says, Jerusalem is in the mountains of Moriah where the temple was built. That place where year after year the Hebrew people would reenact exactly what happened here. They would bring a lamb for the offering. They'd go up the mountain and they'd go back down the mountain saying the Lord will provide. They were bringing a lamb to die for their sins. They're reenacting the Abraham story. It gives context to Leviticus. Right? But all that means, right, where was Jesus crucified? On a mountain, Jerusalem, in the mountains of Moriah, quite possibly the same mountain, which wouldn't surprise me. And so this this is what this whole thing is pointing to, right? It's lift up your eyes, like Abraham, and see the Lord provide the lamb for the offering. Only you're called to see God's only son 
the Son whom he loved, Jesus Christ, being crucified for your sins. Because on that day, the day in which Jesus died, God the Father had Jesus take his beloved son, the better Isaac, and he laid on him the wood for the offering, the tree of the cross. And Jesus carried that cross up Calvary, and the Father did not stay his hand. Instead of a voice interrupting saying, stop, stop, this is wrong, Jesus got silence. All we heard was Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you're, you're watching Jesus being the lamb God provided for you for the forgiveness of sins. So you would know that God is both holy, just, we say the just and justifier of all whom he loves. Jesus shows you the God of grace and the God of justice coming together by giving you the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? See, what Abraham was doing, it's astounding, right? In chapter 21, Abraham's called a prophet. And it turns out we can t- look back and say, you know what Abraham had the honor of doing and he didn't know what he was doing? He had the honor of prophetically acting out the drama of the cross. And he got to play the role of God the Father. Right? And Jesus, the better Isaac, right? Isaac had the honor of right, dramatically playing out a little bit of what the Messiah would do, trusting his father even through death itself. Right? See, this is, we saw the gospel this morning. Right? And so the question is, right, when you see a God do that for you, right, do you hear what God is saying? That's what the test is. The test reveals what's in our hearts and it reveals what God's faithfulness to his promise and the cross reveals that God the Father is saying, uh, now that you see the Son in your place on the tree and the wood, now you know your Father loves you because he he did not withhold from you his Son, his only Son, whom he loves. That's what Richard Dawkins missed out on, the whole big story of the Bible. That's what we miss out on. (laughs) If we think it's about us rather than seeing God provide for us. And so what's the effect here? And this is, we've seen the test, we've seen God provide in an astounding way. What's the effect supposed to be on us? It's supposed to be this obedience of faith, right? I mean, it, it is hard not to be in awe of Abraham's faith and obedience and, and to just look at Isaac and say, how in the world could you do this? I mean, Isaac is not this, a lot of people think that Isaac might have very well been like a teenager. I mean, he's big enough to carry wood for an offering. Right? He's, he's, not, he's not a tiny lad. Right? And he's submitted to his father's commands. And the way James applies this passage, it's really pointed. How do you really know you believe that God the Father loves you and that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he says, faith without works is dead. Right? In other words, Abraham is showing us that keeping God's commandments is not what gets you the blessing. It, 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 it reveals whether you actually understand how much of a blessing you've already received through faith. Right? It demonstrates good works. They demonstrate your faith 
in the Lamb provided for you. Or you can put it another way, if you only believe in a God of love and not a God of justice, not the God who would give up his only son, right? If you only believe God just has to love me because it's his job and he would never tell me to do something I would never want to do myself, right? Abraham would have never gone up the mountain. He never would have shown us the gospel that way, right? No, the, the point is faith expresses itself in love for God and love for neighbor and keeping God's commandments. And, and the way you show your gratitude for the gift of grace that is Jesus, the Lamb of God, provided for you is through your good works, right? It's a call to take up your cross and, and, and hear God's word and, and obey. And you can't do that alone, right? It, if you get the order messed up, if you say, I got to be like Abraham and obey the voice of the Lord, uh, you're going to be trying to do this by yourself. You need to see the Lamb provided and then see that it's, this is where, where we get our motivation to obey, Right. And second, one of the ways you, we become more obedient in faith right, is this is a gift for your anxiety and my anxiety. Right, the first call is to believe, to lift up your eyes and see the one provided for you. And, and to be able to say, now I know my Father loves me in heaven more than I can imagine because if he who did not spare his only son for us, how will he not graciously give us all things, as Paul says. Right? See, this is the way we start to go after the heart of the matter. The way to deal with our anxiety, our, our, our scheming, our, our planning, the way, all the different ways we try and protect ourselves to say, I don't really have to do that, even though God, I, I know God said I should. Right? Or all the ways we enslave ourselves to something in this world. We're, we're called to lift up our eyes and look at how God provided for us. Right? I mean, that, I just quoted Romans 8.32. Paul's using the language of Genesis 22 to talk about Jesus. He who did not spare his only son for us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously also give us all things? And that's in the context he's going to say that I know the love of God will never be cut off from us whether you're going through nakedness, famine, sword, death, persecution, tribulation, all these things that are worse and worse and worse, and not even death itself could cut us off from the love of the Father. Right? This is where you go with your anxiety. And what it does is it starts to change your self-talk. Right? I know my self-talk is, I got this. I got to look inside my heart and find the strength to, to plow through to do whatever I'm supposed to do. No, our self-talk should be, God has provided. Right? That's what Abraham's doing, right? God will provide the sacrifice. We look back, we have something clear. We look back and say, God has provided. And because he's provided Jesus for me, Lord, I'm going to trust that you're going to provide what I need for me right here, right now. Because I know, even though I'm scared, you love me. That's an act of faith. Right? And so it's a good question. Where are the places where you're saying, I cannot do this. I do not want to do whatever it is you're commanding me to do. Right? I don't want to forgive. I don't want to give. I don't want to sacrifice. Wherever that is. Right? Part of it, I think this is teaching us, if your self-talk is, God has provided Jesus, 
the Lord will provide for me through this next stage that I'm walking through that's going to be hard. Right? Ask God to provide. We're going to come to the table here in a moment and we're going to prophetically reenact the drama of the God the Father giving up his son for us to, to seal that to our, to our hearts that we might really believe these things. And the purpose is not only to comfort us, but it's also to challenge us, right? To, to, to give us strength to keep God's commandments, to give us fuel for the journey because there are difficult things ahead that we can't even see. And so each and every day we say the Lord has provided. We're going to taste the Lord's provision here in a moment. That happened because Jesus faithfully, lovingly <laughs> allowed himself to be bound in submission to the words of his father. And then he dies. He's raised again. He's now seated at the right hand of the father. And he says, I will send you the spirit, the same spirit that empowered me to go to the cross. You have a helper. All because God provided. So, let, let's pray and we'll come to the table. Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of this story that you, we really do get to see the gospel promise beforehand to Abraham in the giving up of his only son. So we thank you that he obeyed um, your voice. Most of all, we thank that Jesus obeyed your voice perfectly, even better than Abraham, so that we might be blessed, greater than we can imagine, to be loved by you, to be forgiven, to be justified, to have you as our God, that we can be your people. And even though you know our hearts, <laughs> you claimed us as your own anyway. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. And I ask as we come to the table now that you would preach the gospel to our hearts and we too would say, Lord, you have provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.